Well, thank you, worship team. And thank you again for being here this morning. And if you have a Bible with you, open up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. You can read along uh, on the screens with us today. Mark chapter 5. We're continuing our series through the gospel of Mark called None Like Him. We're looking at the life of Jesus in the story of Mark and how he portrays uh, Jesus' life in a kind of a mini documentary or biography, if you will. So uh, lots of good stuff in Mark that we're seeing along the way, and that'll be the case today in Mark chapter 5 as well. So let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word as we receive it today. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful again that we get to be here with you and with each other. God, we know that you have spoken to us through the Bible, through your word. And we pray today, Lord, that you would give us receptive hearts. Lord, give us an attentive spirit today. As we hear what you have to say to us, let us receive it well. And we pray that you would transform us by the power of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, the 21st century has seen the rise of reality TV to a point of basic, basically absurdity at this point, right? I mean, there is a show about somebody doing something in the world literally all the time. I mean, it's crazy, right? So whether you're engaged to someone for only 90 days or you're baking cakes or you're getting voted off an island or you're receiving a rose, I don't know, okay? It's just too much, okay, in my opinion. Now, some of you are like, he just named my four favorite TV shows. I know what he's doing, right? I know those shows. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm not judging you too bit, too much, just a little, right? But the question is, why, why are people so drawn to the ordinary and mundane lives of strangers? Why are we so drawn to their stories? Now, besides being excited to see who got you know, the rose are voted off the island. Part of it, I think, part of it, I think is, you know, we think, well, if people are, if people are really interested in that person's life and find their life interesting and worthwhile, then maybe, maybe people can be interested in my life. Maybe my life is interesting and worthwhile to others. Whatever the reason, reality TV shows something that we Christians should really already be aware of, something we should already know. And that is, the truth is, yes, everyone has a story. And everyone's story is interesting and worthwhile. Why? Because every single human that has ever lived and lives now and will ever live is created by God and made in the image of God. And so therefore, your life story has meaning and purpose probably beyond your expectations, beyond what you can even see. So we're drawn to these stories, even of strangers, because deep down it's pointing to a real truth that our stories do matter because there is a God who has created us in his own image. Today we're going to see one of the most remarkable life stories of transformation 
in all the Bible, probably in the history of the world. We've got a lot to see here, so I want us to dig right in, all right? So Mark chapter 5, I want us to walk through this story, and then we're going to make some some key points at the end. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 is the story we find today. Let's start here in verse 1. We'll go down to verse 2. They came to the other side of the sea. So this is Jesus and his disciples. They came to the other side of the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee, all right, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, let's stop right there. This is not Jesus's first encounter with the demonic realm, right? As you look in Mark's gospel, you see Jesus encountering the demonic spirits, but Mark takes time here to give more personal details this time that that are very interesting and very hard to hear almost. Look at this, verse 3. This man with the demon possession, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is almost hard to read. Because if we really let ourselves think about how terrible this poor man's life was, it is very disturbing. This is one of the more graphic things you'll see in the New Testament. This, this man is living among the tombs. So he's living among the dead, showing that he is as good as dead. His life has no meaning. His life has no purpose. And he is in constant agony. He's been isolated from society. People have tried to subdue him with chains. He's constantly crying out. He's cutting himself. He probably just wanted the misery to end. But you can't help but wonder, what what led to that? What was this man's life like before? Did he have a family? Was he married? Does he have kids? Do they wake up every morning wondering if he's okay, if he's still alive? Do they ever go out searching for him amongst the mountains and the tombs by the sea? I think we have some clues you're going to see that answer that. We've already seen some. Notice it says that people people tried to subdue him before. Perhaps indicating that at one time there were people who cared deeply about him. They didn't just let him go. They wanted him to change. They put him in those chains in hopes that maybe he would grow out of this or something would happen and he would be alleviated from this pain and this torment. At some point, there was a level of hope for him. But the evil power inside of him grew. And so while he was able to break those physical chains on his arms, he was becoming more and more shackled spiritually. He desperately wanted the misery to end. So the tombs of the dead were calling his name. That's where he felt he belonged because that's where his life 
was tragically heading to a quick end. Until, look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So once again, in the Gospel of Mark, we, we see that even though other people, including his own disciples to some point, even though they don't know who Jesus really is, the spiritual realm knows who he is exactly. The demons themselves know Jesus' real identity. They know they know that he is, as they say here, son of the most high God. Why is that, though? Why do we keep seeing this come up in the book of Mark? Why do the demons know who Jesus is? And why do they keep confronting him and speaking through others to him? Well, you see, when Jesus began his ministry at the beginning of Mark that we saw in the first week of this series, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. And so, in other words, in a way, those are fighting words. Jesus came and declared war on Satan and the evil spiritual realm. Jesus has come to earth to push back the darkness and the evil forces know it. They know what they're up against. And so they are very prominent throughout Mark's story because they're on high alert. They are on high alert. They know what Jesus has come to do and they know what he is capable of. So this legion, he names himself, and that name, by the way, means many, right? Many demons. It's not just one demon that has possessed this poor man. It is many, many demons. He knows. He knows what Jesus is capable of. And so what does he do? He begs. He begs the son of the most high God not to put an end to him because he knows one day that he will put an end to him, but he's trying to wreak as much havoc as he can and destroy the image of God in people's souls as much as he can before that end finally comes. So he comes to Jesus and says, don't torment me, please. Verse 11. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they, legion, the demons, begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, this is a story that would definitely make the 6 o'clock news. You know what I mean? <laughs> wow. But there's some pretty interesting things to notice here that's going on. This is remarkable. First of all, 
the fact that somebody owns that many pigs is A, really smelly, right? But B, it's also evidence that this is a Gentile region. So in other words, it's a non-Jewish part of the Galilean Sea, right? So Jews at the time considered pigs to be unclean and would have nothing to do with them. So I know this sounds random, but it's very key to understanding part of the story at the end. So we'll come back to that later, but keep that in mind. This is not, this is not a place where Jew, the Jewish religion is prominent. We're talking a Gentile region here. Keep that in mind. But we also have to realize here that 2,000 pigs are a lot of money for somebody, right? I mean, that is a lot of bacon. You know what I mean? So Jesus, Jesus giving permission to legion, these many demons, to enter the pigs, and then the pigs going crazy now. I mean, you ever seen a demon-possessed pig? Right, I, I have not, but this is what happens, right? They're going crazy and, and drowning. So here's what that means. That means financial trouble for somebody. That means financial trouble for the owner and anyone who would profit from the selling and the consumption of these pigs for income. So Jesus, he's not being insensitive here to the owner of the pigs. He is seeing the higher priority. He is saving this demon-possessed man's life. He's more concerned with this one man's soul than he is the financial status of the owner of the pigs. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled. I probably would too, right? The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. I mean, you can imagine them going back in the city and be like, y'all ain't gonna believe what just happened, <laughs> right? And you gotta come see this. So this is big news. Lots of money, lots of food has been lost for this area, but one person has been found. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They can't believe their eyes. How is this possible? I mean, you can imagine them saying something like, there's no way. What is going on? We know this guy. We've tried dozens of times to subdue him. You don't even realize the strong metal chains we've put around him. He broke those. There's no way that this guy could be changed. You see, this transformation is so astonishing that it spooks them. They realize there must be a serious power at work that is present in Jesus to do what no one previously could do as they had tried to subdue him before. But Jesus, Jesus didn't subdue him. He transformed him. And he's going to restore him. Look at verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. 
That's probably not the response you would expect. Notice this is the second time in this story someone has begged Jesus for something. First, the demons beg him not to destroy them. Now the townspeople beg him to leave, to get out of here. But why? Well, we know they are afraid because they don't understand who he is. They don't understand where his power is coming from. But they also have to be upset for Jesus coming in and disrupting their normalcy. Jesus came in, right? I mean, in their minds, I think essentially the people are saying, listen, we would rather have things back the way they were. We would rather have old crazy Joe living amongst the tombs and just let him suffer and possibly commit suicide. We would just let him be so we could still have our profit and our food supply. But Jesus, now you've come in here and you have just messed it all up. You have ruined this for us. This man can suffer as long as we have what we need, our profit, our stability. If that's how you operate, Jesus, then leave us alone. Verse 18. Often Jesus does not stay where he's not wanted in the scriptures. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged begged him that he might be with him. Notice this is the third time now in this story that someone is begging Jesus for something. But this time, for the right reason. It's the humble and only response that is appropriate. The man who has truly been transformed by Jesus wants more of him. This man has seen Jesus. He's met Jesus. He's been transformed. And now all he can think of is that he wants to be with Jesus. He wants more of the life and the power that Christ gives in his life. He wants to follow him. But Jesus has other really good plans for him. Look at verse 19 through 20. And he, Jesus, did not permit him but said to him, Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. See, Jesus commissions this man to go back home. It's been a long time. He comes back home. He comes back to his family and his friends. And they see the evidence of God's work in this life. He shows them that his life has changed. He tells them about God's mercy and what Jesus had done for him. Man, what a story. Now that's a story I would watch on TV. <laughs> that's a reality show I'd watch. What a testimony, right? But, but hear me out. What if I told you that your testimony, your story, and how you came to know Christ, what if I told you that it, it is just as radical as this man's story? Now, your testimony probably doesn't include pigs drowning. If it does, please see me after the service. I definitely want to hear about that, okay? <laughs> but... 
Your testimony, your story, no matter who you are, is radical because something had to die. Something has to die for life to take root in a sinful and wicked heart. You see, I think by looking at the transformative testimony of this man, we can see our own testimony in a different way. Yes, his story is unique, but so is yours and what Christ really has done in your heart. And so I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about our story of salvation. And there's some general principles that are true for all of us here in the room, if you know Christ. But specifically, your life will fill in the details of how Christ has orchestrated events and how God has worked in your heart and changed you and, and given you life through Jesus. If that is true of you today, this is your story. Number one, this was our condition before Christ. You were spiritually dead. Before Jesus found you, all of us who now know Christ and find salvation in his name, we were previously spiritually dead. And you know how we see the evidence of that? Well, first of all, we resisted what was good for us. When you're walking as a dead man or a dead woman, right? When you're spiritually dead, you're going to resist what is actually good for you because you have no real interest in true righteousness and holy living according to God's word unless you fake it for some reason, which is absolutely possible, while trying, though, to resist the safety restraints. Think, think about the story. While this man was trying to resist those chains and those shackles, those safety restraints and boundaries put on him by those who cared enough about him to try, while he was resisting that, he was actually further shackling himself spiritually and didn't know it. I mean, how many of us have done that? How many of us have had people, before we know Jesus, we had people in our lives who tried to lovingly reach out to us and tried to give us boundaries. Listen, that starts hopefully with your own parents. The, the, you know, we're growing up and everything's normally decently okay and then we become a teenager and thing, you know, whatever, <laughs> right? And we see the restraints our parents give us as restrictive and we don't understand that these good and loving rules will keep us safe and protect us and give us a life that we can thrive in. But that doesn't change. That mindset and that perception we have, it starts in those years, but you know what? It keeps going into adulthood. And we think of the people in your life that, that have tried to lovingly reach out to you and give you a life preserver, but you saw it as shackles and chains. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. Wanda read this for us earlier, but listen again. This describes our spiritual situation so accurately. Look at this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, we were all in the same boat. 
Every single one of us before we knew Christ were dead as a doornail. We were spiritually done. There was no hope. And so before Christ, some people see Christianity as restrictive. And and real freedom, they would say, is found in living however you want. And you get to define what is actually true or false in the world. Our world today says essentially the overarching philosophy of, of humanity today, especially in America, is you get to decide what is actually true for you. And you just live according to that. But listen, in the end, that doesn't hold up. In the end, that leads to more division, not less. Because Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Only the truth of God is what matters, and that is reality. But before we know Christ, we see sometimes, some people see Christianity as being, oh, restrictive, and I can't have fun, and I can't do these things. But like the man in this story, as people are trying to subdue him, perhaps what we think is slavery is actually freedom, and vice versa. What we think is freedom is actually restrictive. Apart from Christ, we were living amongst the dead. But in reality, we were only further shackling ourselves, which leads to the next sub-point. B, we can see that we were spiritually dead by the fact that we were captive to Satan's strongholds. So not only did we have a hard time with resisting what was good for us, we were also captive to strongholds provided by the schemes of Satan himself. You see, in this poor man's life, Satan had a real, extraordinarily powerful stronghold on this man. But listen, before you knew Christ, he had that on you as well. He had that on me. We were captive to Satan's strongholds in some way or another. Even as Christians, you know, and I want to be clear here, even as Christians, we can fall into habitual patterns of sin that I believe, yes, can form a stronghold on you. Now, I want to also just be very clear that, and we don't have time, I don't have 10 minutes to explain this, so I'll just say it really briefly. No, I do not believe that Christians can be possessed by demons. I do not believe that. Okay, I believe the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you and there's no room for anything else, right? There's no room for any other spirit. His power keeps that uh, away, okay? But before we know Jesus, right, we can fall into these habitual patterns of sin and they really have a true eternal stronghold on you. But even after you come to know Christ, you can still slip into these patterns of sin that can begin to form strongholds, but you're forgetting your identity at that point. Right? You, you're forgetting the fact that you're loved by God and that what he has for you is good, that you are his child. You're just not following him. You're not being obedient. And so the sin is taking a hold on your life. Johnny Hunt, in his book, Demolishing Stronghold, says this, a stronghold is any habit that got hold of you. At one time in your life, you were playing around with it because you didn't see it as a big deal. And then one day, it just kind of closed its grip on you And now you can't get loose. That's a stronghold. James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Walking among the tombs. 
held captive by something in this world that you thought was okay. You thought it would give you a sense of pleasure or relief. You thought it would help you escape. It could be money. It could be any idol. It could be the sense of just needing people's approval, and so you lower your standards and you're willing to do whatever it takes to get people to like you. Whatever it is that has held you captive, Satan's ultimate goal is to destroy you. It's a snowball effect. And so it may seem harmless at first, but over time it creates this stronghold. It closes its grip slowly so that you don't even realize it's happening. And maybe people reach out to you and they try to give you these chains and you say, don't, don't chain me down. Let me live like this. But all the while, your soul is being held more and more captive to something evil and terrible that will ultimately ruin your life. To be clear, we're not told why this man was in the grip of Satan's stronghold, but what we see here is that it's possible. This man had a home. He had friends before, but something happened in his life. Before Jesus that was every single one of us in some way, following the course of this world, as Ephesians 2 has told us. But then, just like the man met Jesus and was transformed, so are we. That's the second thing we see in this story. When we meet Christ, before Christ, we're spiritually dead, there's no hope. You can't climb your way out of that. But when you come to Christ, when he finds you and you respond humbly, admitting that you are desperate for his grace, when we meet Christ, he transforms us. When those pigs ran off down into the sea and drowned, that was it. That evil was defeated with all of its nastiness, all of its grossness, all of its shame. It was destroyed in that watery grave. And that is exactly what happens to you when you turn to Christ for salvation. God forgives you of your sins because Jesus bore them on himself. They have been drowned in the sea. Micah chapter 7, verse 19, the prophet Micah prophesied and said this, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Just as those pigs were cast into this watery grave, so are our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus is the only thing that can transform a life that can break the real chains and set a soul free. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, that we read earlier, you see, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of the world. But God. But God has something to say. God has something to say to the brokenhearted. God has something to say to those who are held captive by something in the world, who are chained down and they don't even know it. God has something to say to you. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when 
we were dead in our trespasses. What? Say it together. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Amen. Finally, the man is in his right mind. He's sitting there, he's clothed, he's in his right mind. His life had been restored. So now, he's on a new journey. He's on a completely different road. Do you see that? Now, he's going to have some challenges along the way. This transformation in his heart was immediate and complete. But along the way, he's going to have some challenges. He's going to have to go back home. And he's probably going to have to explain some things. He's going to have to go back home and make reconciliation with those that possibly he had hurt before that led him down this terrible path of this stronghold dominating his life. There are going to be hard steps ahead. See, when Christ transforms you, he gives you a new life. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It means that it's going to be good. It's going to be righteous. It's going to be true. It's going to be pure. But there's going to be hard steps along the way. But that brings us to number three. The third thing we can see in the life and the story of this man is the same in our own true story of salvation. As we follow Christ, as we follow Christ, we should be obedient and missional. Obedient to his word and missional in his calling for our lives. The man in the story, what did he want? What did he beg Jesus for? He wanted more of him. He met Jesus. He experienced life-transforming grace, salvation. He finally knew what it was like to be free, spiritually speaking. The shame was not burdensome on him anymore. That weight of guilt had been lifted. He is free. And immediately, what does he want? He wants more of Jesus. I love that. He wanted to follow him in obedience. You see, that desire... That desire in him, and if you have that desire in you, that's evidence that you really do know the Lord. It's not that you live some perfect life. You, you can't. Even as a Christian, we sin every day, every moment. There is so much sin ingrained in our minds. But what is Jesus doing? He is transforming us because he's given us this desire now. You see, before we didn't even have the desire. But when you meet Christ, you know how you know that you really know him. You want more of him. But Jesus had a mission for this man. Probably greater than he could imagine. Remember I mentioned to you the fact that there were pigs. The fact that there were pigs indicates that this is a Gentile region showing that Jesus came to reach all the nations, not just Israel. He wanted to reach all the nations. And look at it already starting here, this early in the story of his life in Mark. This man, this man may have been the first missionary to the Gentiles. If you consider a missionary someone who goes and tells others about Jesus. So when Jesus tells his, this man to go home and tell his friends, go and tell, this is almost like a foreshadowing of the Great Commission. 
that Jesus gives his disciples that's true for all of us before he ascended into heaven at the end of Matthew. Jesus said, go, therefore, right? And he told us to to share the gospel, to baptize those in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here, this is almost like a foreshadowing of that great commission for all children of God to follow Jesus and be missional in our mindset, to look at our friends starting in our own home, our circles of influence, and to share the good news of what Jesus has done for us. The one who has been changed by Jesus will proclaim the good news of Jesus. We'll be excited to share it, just like this man was excited to go home and tell his friends what Jesus had done and about the mercy of God. And boy, did this man have a story to tell. He had met Jesus, and his life was transformed. But you see, we all have a radical story to tell. Listen, even if you were saved as a child, and you may think, well, Pastor Andrew, I I mean, I feel like my testimony is kind of boring, and I've been in church my whole life. Okay, so are you perfect? (laughs) Are you telling me that you haven't had seasons of your life where you've struggled with serious doubt or sin? That you haven't had to go through some really dark valleys of suffering and pain or perhaps the loss of a loved one? Are you telling me that you don't have a story to share that could encourage someone else? We all do. We all have a radical story to tell because we were all once dead in our sin. No matter how, what age you were no, no matter what age did you met Christ, before that you were dead in your sin. You were captive to Satan's schemes. But because, because there was another man living, or another man, I should say, among the tombs, because another man was among the tombs, he went there voluntarily not to stay there, but to defeat sin and death. Because he defeated the grave. Because Jesus was in the tomb, but came out of the tomb. We can have new life. We don't have to live among the dead. Luke chapter 24, verse 5. When they went to the tomb, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus had risen from the grave. See, if you've truly surrendered your life to Jesus, then that is true for you as well. You have been raised to new life. The the chains that previously held you down have been broken. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says it so well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, this man was living among the tombs, among the dead. And I believe if his suicide attempts at cutting himself had worked, I don't think there would have been a funeral for him. It's possible that no one would have even known that he died. But you know, after being restored, after returning to his life back home and his friends, 
to his family. I, I like to think that whenever he eventually did pass away, that there was a really big funeral. That the whole town showed up. I like to think that at this man's funeral, when they finally did bury him in the tombs that he once roamed, that the story that day of his life was not even really about him. I would like to think that they didn't list a long list of all of his achievements and degrees and accomplishments, that it really wasn't even about him at all. That though he was greatly loved, he was not even the highlight of his own funeral. Because all people could see in this man's life was Jesus. His story was all about Christ. His story was Christ's story. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is true of you as well. And I wonder what people will say about you at your funeral one day. There's nothing wrong with honoring someone and talking about the good things they've done in their life. But I just wonder, at your funeral one day, will it be so evident? Will it be so evident of your love for Jesus and how much you couldn't help but share about his mercy that he had on you, will that define you? Will that be the story of your life, Christ himself? I think there's a challenge for us here in the story today to do the hard task of seeing ourselves in this man. And that's going to take some honesty on your part. That's going to take some serious humility for each of us to look at this man's life and say, that's me. Or that was me. But may we turn every morning to look up and to look at what we've been given through Jesus Christ, salvation. May we remind ourselves and preach the gospel to ourselves in our distracted minds every moment of every day and remind ourselves of who we really are. We do not live among the tombs. We have been set free you are, if you know the Son of God, you are free indeed. So may we live like those who are free. May we see the Word of God as David did in the Psalms, sweeter than the honeycomb. He loved God's Word because he knew his life depended on it. May we not see God's Word as being something restrictive, that will chain us down, 
May we see it as the life-giving grace that it is. May we live lives of obedience. May we live lives that, that seeks to share this good news and this mercy with others. To tell them what Jesus had done for us. You see, we all have a story. And your story matters because it matters to God. Look at what he went through to give you the story you have. He gave up himself. He gave his life to give you your story of salvation. Do not neglect that. Do not minimize that. Rejoice in that. And let it give you that freedom and hope it should, just as this man had. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are grateful today that you have the power to break chains. And Lord, I don't know what strongholds someone in here may be dealing with, but you do, and they know. And so God, I pray that every person in this room would surrender any sinful pattern in their lives to you. Lord, that they would confess. Lord, confession brings freedom. That they would confess to you right now and be honest with their struggle. Lord, you already know it. So give us the courage and the boldness to proclaim it to you and confess it to you now. Lord, we see in this story the terrible path that evil will lead us down. The stronghold and grip it could have on our lives. Lord, save us from this. Jesus, we thank you that you have already, for those of us who know you, you already have saved us, God. You have given us your record of righteousness, your life in our place. Lord, you lived the life that we could never live. You died the death. We should have died for our own sin. You died in our place as our substitute, Lord, and you rose from the tomb so that by faith we are united in your name and therefore your resurrection life is our resurrection life. Jesus, your story is our story. Let us not neglect that. Let us rejoice in it and let us share it with others. Would you give us the grace to do that, Lord, every single day? It's in your name we pray.